a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. Today we bring you an extraordinary two-part episode of The Alternative Truth. We're setting out to explore the exponential increase in young people presenting for treatment of gender dysphoria. Some people put this down to an increased community acceptance. Others point to cultural forces. The public health phenomenon certainly asks a number of questions. Is the experience of gender dysphoria synonymous with being transgender? How in a young person can we know what is innate versus transient? Three, how can connected care take place while allowing space for all other potentially contributing factors and comorbidities to be explored? Given the complexity and controversy around this topic, this episode demanded an unprecedented amount of research. This included consultation with clinical experts, members of the trans community, researchers and advocates. This was necessary, really, to con- comprehend the frame, the rate at which this public health phenomenon is unfolding, also to contend with the profound ethical, long-term medical and social implications attached. At the time this episode was produced, the number of children and young people presenting to gender services in the West is up significantly. In some instances, it's 4,000% compared with a decade ago. Natal females identifying as male now comprise a majority of young people presenting to these gender services. I hear you ask why. Towards answering this question, several clinicians from the leading gender service at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne were approached. These included paediatricians Dr Michelle Telford and Dr Ken Pang, and child and adolescent psychiatrists Associate Professor Campbell-Paul and Dr Tiber Malouf. After a brief exchange with the lead clinician, I was referred to the Media and Communications Department of RCH, who responded, Following discussions with Executive and Michelle, this is unfortunately not something we're in a position to be involved with at this time. I also contacted leading RCH-affiliated trans activist parent, Rebecca Robertson, founder of Transform, who was unavailable to participate. I also contacted the other leading Australian Child and Adolescent Health Service from the Perth Children's Hospital, who responded as followed. We're unable to facilitate your request on this occasion, but wish you well with your podcast. So before we get started, I want to acknowledge the absence of a clinician treating trans children and adolescents and issue an open invitation to anyone listening in who feels they have another perspective to contribute to get in touch. I would love to hear from you. I also want to offer a huge thanks to the passionate voices who join us in the arena of unpacking this important topic. In part one, we're joined by Dr. Helen Joyce, journalist, author, researcher and activist, Dr. Ada Chung, endocrinologist and trans health advocate, and Sabs Wiki, non-binary transgender researcher and LGBTIQA community worker. In part two, we're joined by Walt Heyer, former transgender male-to-female, detransitioner and sex change regret advocate, and Associate Professor Ramin Cheyenne, leading plastic and reconstructive surgeon and director of the O'Brien Institute. 
Our first guest, Dr Helen Joyce, entered today's topic through her lens as an academic and author. Her soon-to-be-released book will unpack gender identity ideology as it relates to modern gender dysphoria. Helen's exploration of the rise in transgenderism comes on a background of a very esteemed career in journalism as editor for The Economist, the University of Cambridge and the Royal Statistical Society. Having spent weeks speaking to clinicians, activists and community members, what struck me about Helen was her grasp of the longitudinal arc of this issue over time. In so many ways, Helen's knack for pattern recognition reminded me of the Arthur Schopenhauer quote, Talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Helen, I want to start by thanking you so much for making time to speak with us all the way from the UK. Um, And I thought I'd launch out by asking you to tell us a bit about your career to date and how you came to the topic of trans transgenderism and children. I've been at The Economist since 2005. I started as our education correspondent. And then between about 2014 and 2018, I edited our international section. And that was when the editor asked me to look at this thing she was hearing about from her kids, which was that, you know, friends are coming home and saying that they're non-binary. And I knew nothing about it. And I started to look into it. And it took me a long time to find my footing. But I always knew, I say, I, I would say I always knew really from the beginning that something was up. Because one thing you do learn if you do mathematics is what a circular definition is. And so the thing that snagged me, I think, is a little bit different than for a lot of other people. It was that circular definition, trans women are women. And if you know anything about mathematics, the first question you ask yourself then is, oh, well, what is a woman? You know, that's like saying a score, you know, a squam is a squam. Well, what's a squam? I understand you've followed this, I guess, can I call it a rabbit hole, um, for many years now and uh, in the process of putting together a book. What is it that sort of motivated you to go from investigating appears non-binary children or presentation of non-binary to the point where you have been so taken and grabbed by this that you've written a book? So what I said there about um, sort of intellectual, an intellectual reason, that's true, that is just an intellectual reason. And it did, it did grab me, but it wasn't enough to make me, you know, get up at 6am every day to write for three hours before work. What turned it from a sort of an intellectual obsession for me into a passion project was last year when I went to a meeting to launch a group of detransitioners here in the UK. Uh, So, so many more people are transitioning young and in particular girls. Girls used to really present at gender clinics at all. And now far the overwhelming majority of the case load at any gender clinic will be teenage girls. Uh, those teenage girls turn up for a variety of different reasons. And even after just a few years, some of them realise they've made a bad mistake. But in the meantime, they've been put on the transgender train. They've been maybe given puberty blockers. They've been given cross-sex hormones. They've had mastectomies. I met a few girls who were 22, 23, who had had radical hysterectomies, you know, their ovaries, their uteruses, their cervixes cut out when they were between 18 and 21. Uh, these girls really just realised when they were 22, 23, that they had been suffering from an eating disorder and that was why they had hated their bodies so much or that really they were just lesbian, not straight boys trapped in a girl's body as they had imagined. And I was devastated. Um, I have some gay people very close to me, gay children really, great gay teenagers. And I really couldn't sleep for several days after attending that meeting because I just, I literally heard a voice echoing in my head and that isn't something I would say normally. Uh, and this voice just kept saying they're sterilising gay kids. 
And you think, okay, you're a journalist. You've just discovered they're sterilizing gay kids. You can't just walk away from that. So that was what made me decide to actually write the book. That is a huge statement. What have you discovered in, I guess, pursuing that hunch um, since that moment? Because to say they're sterilizing gay kids is one thing, you know, after going to a, a forum, but from all of your research, and I know you've been researching fervently, what have you turned up that supports that or supports or refutes that hypothesis? So going back more than a century, you go back to about 1930 to the first person who was actually able to get a surgeon to help to try to change sex, and that was a male person. Uh, and actually, the film The Danish Girl is about that person, uh, a man, uh, Andreas Wegener, who felt very strongly that he was a woman inside, and he found some German doctors who did believe that you could be trapped inside a, sec- a body of the opposite sex. And if you sort of go forward for the next 70 years or so from there, you are basically talking about adult male people who have felt very strongly all their lives for one reason or another that they are women. And mostly those people don't think that they've changed sex. They they want help to live in a way that they can be most comfortable in. And that's still what most people think when they hear the word, you know, transgender or trans woman. They think of an adult who has spent a long time trying to come to terms with the fact that they're in the wrong body, who has surgery, feels a lot better afterwards. So all the treatment protocols were created for those people. And then along come these teenage girls who are nothing like those people. In large number, they didn't tell anybody that they thought that they were uh, actually members of the opposite sex. And now here they are, and they're being treated as if they're adult men. They're being treated as if saying, I know I'm really of the opposite sex, makes them so. So a word I've heard used, in fact, I think I, I think you might have introduced me to this word for that second group, the sort of, I guess, the Caitlyn Jenner type presentation is an autogynophiliac. Yes, autogynophile. So the theory in the 1990s or 1980s and 1990s that was created by a Canadian gender doctor called Ray Blanchard divided these men into two groups depending on their sexual orientation and when they turned up at the gender clinic, basically. So some of them who turn up younger and um, often already living dressed as women, uh, they're homosexual as an attracted to men. I have to be careful how I talk here because you don't know whether you're talking about this person as a man or as a woman, but they're attracted to male people, okay? Uh, those people often knew from their very earliest life that they um, really just felt more like girls, were happier with girls, and they... Um, they're sort of like an extreme version of a homosexual man. Like most homosexual men don't think they're women and don't want to be women and don't want to have surgery, but there's like an edge of these people who do and who feel much happier and more comfortable as women. And then the other group were more puzzling, really, because they would say they felt like a woman inside, but they don't look like a woman, they haven't dressed as a woman, they're often married with kids. Funnily, very stereotypically male professions a lot of the time, engineering, army, that sort of thing. And yet they say that since at least their teen years, they've felt very strongly that there's a woman inside them. And upon investigating, Ray Blanchard discovered that these men were basically in love with the woman inside them. They had a fantasy version of themselves as a woman, and that fantasy version was their love object. And often in their 40s or 50s, it became unbearable to them not to express this fantasy object. And that was when they chose to transition. I'm not saying anything particular about Caitlyn Jenner, by the way. I don't know Caitlyn Jenner, so I can't comment. But this is the sort of the typical division. And he labelled the second group autogynophiles. It's the Greek for uh, loving yourself as a woman. Now, this is a very controversial theory to a lot of trans people because the current trans ideology uh, suggests that the only way to be trans is that you really actually are genuinely a woman, but somehow ended up in a male body. 
And they don't really say how this can happen, but it's like a gender essence. I mean, the simplistic versions that are discussed in schools and so on literally do say, you know, gender is in the brain and then they'll show you a drawing like of a pink brain in a blue body and a blue brain in a pink body. And they literally are saying that you could just be born with the wrong gender essence somehow put in by a mischievous god. Uh, so if there's just one reason that you can be trans, then you don't like the idea of autogynophilia because that makes two reasons that somebody could be trans. And if you believe the gender essence theory, then you were born with that gender essence theory. There must be trans children. Got it. I mean, at the risk of going off on a slight tangent, is there any evidence to suggest that there are brain differences? Really hard to summarise the brain differences research because there's not very much of it. It's contradictory. And anyway, there's not that much difference between people's brains that we can see. I'm sure there is because... You know, our, our cognition must be in our brains. But neurosci- neuroscience isn't really at the stage where we can, with some confidence, say this sort of person has this sort of brain. Uh, you can teach a machine learning algorithm to recognise male and female brains apart from each other with about 95% accuracy. But you can't point and say, oh, there's the difference, really. Like, it's like overlapping, uh, you know, distributions. It's like faces. I can see that your face is a woman's face. But I can't point to any feature and say, oh, it's the nose that makes it a woman. It makes it a woman's face. So you're talking about something that's already hard. The background is hard. How would you see a trans person's brain as being different from the numbers are small? They're taking hormones, which you would think might affect the brain. Uh, they're people who've had very different life experiences and brains are plastic. So that affects the brain, too. I would say overall, um, no, you couldn't say now that there's a brain difference but then the last thing I would add to that is that even if it turns out in the future there is a brain difference, that doesn't make a person a man or a woman. It just makes them gender dysphoric, which is the word for the um, for the discomfort that people feel by being in the wrong sex. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see in the brain where gender dysphoria is. It's a feeling. That makes a lot of sense. I want to loop back to this phenomenon of children presenting and firstly ask you, you know, can we at this point dimension the scale of the phenomenon, having spoken to you before, I understand that it's not it's not a small ramping up of of numbers. It's it's explosive. Yeah. So the um, the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, is a very good place to look for numbers because it's a single unified system, and so they count things for the whole country. And when they opened, which I think was in 1979, I might be out by a year. I think they saw two kids, both of them little boys. And last year they saw. Now, I wish I'd looked up the numbers, but it was several thousand. But anyway, it's mostly teenage girls. And teenage girls have risen, the number has risen by nearly 5,000% in a decade from almost nothing. Why? Why? Now, so I, I would just say one more thing about yeah, those numbers, do. which is that the NHS doesn't get to see most of the kids who regard themselves as trans because the numbers are far too large. So the children in your, you know, the children in schools who are saying to the teachers, my pronouns are they, them, or I'm a trans boy, or I'm gender questioning or whatever, those kids probably haven't been counted in that number. And I mean, nearly every secondary school has kids like that now, at least in big cities. And that's true in the US. It's true in the UK. I'm sure it's true in Australia. It's certainly true in Canada. So we're not, ca- we're not capturing the full scale of the numbers by any means. We're not capturing the kids who just are identifying or going through some, pre- some process in their heads of regarding themselves as members of the opposite sex. So why are those kids turning up? Well, if you know anything about the history of medicine, you know the expression psychic contagion or psychic epidemic. 
it turns out that when you come to mental diagnoses, and I don't just mean mental illness, I mean anything about how people express themselves and, you know, the protean nature of the human mind, these things are shaped, these symptoms are shaped by ideas in the culture and also by the reaction of the doctors. So if you look back, you see these um, these flare-ups of things like hysteria or shell shock or um, multiple personality disorder, the satanic panic in the 1990s and 2000s. And then these things die back down again. And you think to yourself, well, what, what were those people doing at a different time? Well, they might have not really been expressing themselves in any, any way that brought themselves to the attention of a doctor. Or they might have chosen a sort of different set of symptoms that was more, uh, more presented to them at their time. So these kids, particularly the teenage girls, because it turns out it's teenage girls who are most prone to psychic contagion. Uh, those teenage girls are, there may be kids who have eating disorders or they're kids who are on the autistic spectrum. The kids who are turning up at clinics all around the world now, loads of them are on the autistic spectrum. Like, and some of them are saying up to half the kids are. And those kids are expressing their dis-ease and their unhappiness in the way that's now presented by the popular culture. Do you think that the tendency for um, people on the autistic spectrum to be obsessional plays into this? To me, absolutely no doubt. There are several things about being on the autistic spectrum that predispose you to believing what's presented to you. And one of them is that, that you're obsessional, so you ruminate. There's a strong encouragement to rumination built into all the theory about uh, transgender issues. You know, they say to you, you must, you must examine yourself, you must work out your gender. Your gender is something that nobody else can tell you. But they never give you any clues as to how you can work it out, that you're just meant to do this constant self-examination. Terribly bad thing to suggest to someone on the autistic spectrum. But also they're rather black and white thinkers. So if you've got a gender non-conforming kid who's on the autistic spectrum, and around you is this sort of suggestion that what makes you a man or a woman or makes you a boy or a girl is the way you perform your gender. The way that you could tell that your gender is that of a woman or a man is your liking for toys or your, you know, the, the clothes you choose. An autistic kid is also a bit more primed to believe that sort of thing because they look and they think, well, I don't fit in the box. I am weird for a boy. I am weird for a girl. I, they want a black and white clear line. They want to fit into the box. And then the last thing I would say about the autistic children is um, autism is often connected with feelings of dissociation from your body. And again, this is about this symptom shaping that happens in the broader culture. If you've got a kid who, who doesn't feel at ease, who doesn't feel a connection with their body, who's very socially awkward... And then the explanation for all of those things that's presented to them is that some people are trans and they really are, you know, a brain of one colour and a body of the other, you know, a pink brain and a blue body. They're, they're just prone to believe that. You know, adults told them it makes sense to them. And the last thing as well is that um, this is all presented as a magic cure. Like I have met detransitioners who said that they were literally told on their first visit to a gender clinic that the reason they had an eating disorder was they were trying to starve away their curves because really they were meant to be boys. And that once they started on hormones, the eating disorder would clear up. Now, can you imagine being told that when you're a 17 or 18 year old girl? Like this particular girl who told me this story, her parents were absolutely delighted because they had, she had been near to death several times. She'd been hospitalised for months. And here was this person confidently saying that all that was wrong with their daughter was that he was a son and that everybody had got that wrong. And as soon as he started on hormones, he'd be totally fine. Needless to say, he, he she was not totally fine. Did you follow up what happened? I mean, I've got an explosion of questions here. But... Yes, yes, I... I, I... 
I'm still in touch with them with that girl. I met her after she had detransitioned. Uh, she she had full radical hysterectomy at age 21. Uh, she was happy for about a year. She enjoyed what testosterone did to her body because she's very obsessive about uh, her weight. Um, she moved her obsession from being thin to being muscular. Uh, she went through this, you know, these series of operations to remove her breasts and then all her female internal organs. And then she said that um, she felt so much more unwell than she realised she would because nobody said to her how serious an operation hysterectomy is. I mean, she went through, you know, sudden menopause at age 21. It takes a year to recover from from a hysterectomy and nobody told her that. So she felt so unwell, she went online um, and she found forums for women who had endometriosis or who had um, cancers of the uterus and had to have hysterectomies young. And they were so supportive and lovely and they were so supportive and lovely to her as well. And they gave her information that no doctor had given her and told her things that she she should have known before she consented to this operation. And then she said to me one night, she had this simple and radical question that just came up in her mind. And she said, why would removing my uterus make me a man? Like either she is a man inside or she isn't. Why would removing the uterus make the slightest bit of difference? And that the whole thing came tumbling down. I would say she's somebody who is somewhat um, obsessional. She's a very logical person. That's the best way to put it. So she followed a logical train of thought from what she was presented. She hit a wall very unfortunately after major surgery. And then she bounced right all the way back. And now she just doesn't believe any of it. She thinks that she was fed cultish nonsense and that it is, you know, lured her into serious operation when she was 21. What's her lens looking back? Like if, have you ever asked her what she would say to her younger self? I'm mindful that somewhere out there, someone someone who's family member, someone who's child, someone who's, um, I guess, loved one is being directly impacted. What would this woman, if we had the chance to speak to her, say to her younger self? I think she'd say that there was, I think she'd say that there was nothing that she could say to her younger self, I'm afraid. So young people, by the time they tell adults around them that this is how they feel, have typically been self-indoctrinating online for a long time. Uh, They have found materials on, say, Tumblr, where it says, you know, if you think you might be trans, you really are, that sort of thing. And they've been ruminating and they've built up this whole theory and they've gone very deeply into it. And at that point, there's scripts online about as well about how you can come out to your parents or how you can come out to your school. And you're just, you say, I have always been a boy inside or I have always been a girl inside. I now realise who I am. My pronouns are he, him and anything at all an adult says except wonderful darling, I love having a son, is bigotry. And they are told to cut you off if you say anything bigoted. So you are in an extremely difficult situation as a parent. It's time for your A-grade parenting skills if this happens to you. It is not about you, it is about your child. It is about supporting your child radically. So if there is anyone in that situation, you know, you mustn't react with the sort of incredulity and maybe dismissiveness that comes to mind when your child says something so odd and strange. Of course, your little girl isn't a boy. Don't be ridiculous. You gave birth to her. You know her body, blah, blah, blah. You have to try to be incredibly open-minded and supportive, but to the extent you can steer them away from anything that is irreversible and give them time and listen to them. So the suggestions that therapists gave to me were to say things like... um, that must be really hard for you. Tell me more about it. Or um, I can't imagine what you must be feeling. Help me to understand. Be really questioning and open and don't lose the connection with your child, whatever you can do. And just accept this is really difficult. The other thing that therapists said to me is tell parents to get their own therapist straight away. They need support. How often, I mean, 
right now I'm think my mind is sort of thinking about this five thousand percent increase, and I I was going to ask you, I guess, to confirm what role you feel social media has or is playing in that number, but also to kind of loop back on this, what on earth could or should parents do? Because right now I see kind of a beeline to gender service clinics. First, let's let's address the first question, which is what do you think the the relationship is between um, social media, which, yeah, I guess it's been around for, what, 15, 20 years? So I think that's where it incubated. I think that's where the epidemic really spread. And it spread in a way that adults didn't see very much through teenagers. So that there are these sites like Tumblr where very few adults are. And teenagers are like on the Lord of Flies, Lord of the Flies Island. You know, they're educating right. each other there. And Got so it. craziness just circulates there. Uh, so kids came out of that like fully formed with a new ideology, like a very cultish and not very consistent ideology, but parents saw none of it. Now, however, it's all moved into schools. You know, it's being written into laws. Teaching materials all say this sort of stuff. I was looking at an Australian teaching materials called All About Us, actually, just a couple of days ago. And they really present this this ideology as if it's proved fact. They say everybody is born with a gender identity. Your gender identity may not be concordant with the sex you were assigned at birth. There's another piece of ridiculous jargon where sex, sexes are not assigned at birth. How did that word come in? Because I don't know that we're, you're not assigned a sex, you're just a born a sex. You're actually conceived a sex. Yeah. I mean, it's that far back. Uh, it's terminology that uh, was born in the treatment of intersex infants. Uh, the very, 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 very few children who are born with really radical anomalies of their sex organs that make it difficult at first to realise whether they're male or female. Nowadays, we do proper investigations and you work out, you know, from their chromosomes, from their hormone assays and so on, what this child actually is and you and you treat them accordingly. But in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, doctors just kind of said, well, you know, tidy them up. You know, you've got, a, you've got a child you know is a boy, but their genitals are abnormal. Cut it all off, tell them they're a girl, send them home. And they assigned the child a sex. So that's where the terminology came from. And it has been appropriated by the transgender movement as the flip side of making gender identity seem really concrete. So gender identity is this incredibly important thing. It's in all of us. It's what makes you who you are. You need to ruminate to work out what yours is. Sex, therefore, has to be trivial. If it's to override bodies, you have to cast all the doubts you can on what sex is. So they say it's assigned at birth. You were assigned the wrong sex at birth. You'll often hear kids say that they're AMAB or AFAB. It stands for assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth. And I always think of the Hogwarts sorting hat. You know, I imagine the doctor takes the baby out and has a quick glance at it and goes, oh, yeah. Gryffindor or female, you know, it's a mad expression. But this is what's used in your own teaching materials in your own country right now. I promise you. And then they will say, you know, this person was assigned female at birth, but understood from how they feel inside that she is really a girl or she is non-binary or she's whatever she is. And then you ask, how did this person come to this conclusion that they really are a girl or really are a boy, it always goes straight to stereotypes. They start telling you what they like to wear, what they like to play with when they were little, how they didn't want their hair cut or did want to grow their hair long or whatever, you know? So the only guide that children are given that's concrete is about stereotypes. I do want to kind of quickly loop back and talk about children and the pathways they're being put on at the moment because you've you've alluded to the importance of people putting on their A-grade parenting and holding space for kids and, I guess, offering open, curious parenting. However, well-intentioned parents are also being steered towards gender services um, where 
you know, the next stop is medicalization, really, of, of these sensations. It's very hard, isn't it? So one of the therapist I, therapists I spoke to, the first gender questioning kids she saw, she was, because this was several years ago, she was a bit ahead of the curve. She was able to sit down and talk to those kids in a very open and questioning way, individually, find out what was behind it, talk about their social media use, talk about their body images, talk about their ideas about what male and female meant. And those children desisted. And then when a couple of years later, kids started to come into her office at a different school. She thought she knew what she was doing and she thought she was ready. And she said everything had changed in those two years. This is about 2015. The whole culture was suddenly against her. The school had put into place a protocol that meant that children's gender identities had to be immediately affirmed. So she couldn't say to this little girl who'd come into her, let's think about that. What, what would it mean to you to say that you're a boy? She had to say he. She would be sacked if she didn't. So she was put into a situation, she said to me, it was as if, you know, I had a child and her eating disorder. That's difficult. And now I have a child, her eating disorder and her religion. And these, so the religion was sort of institutionalised in the school, this whole belief system. So I'm afraid that you are in a very difficult situation if your child says to you, I think that I'm really a member of the opposite sex. I think I'm really a girl, I, you know, or just what they say now is, you know, I am a girl. I am a boy. I didn't know it. Now I have the words, you know, get with the programme. Uh, you are going to have to think about who you talk to, who's around you, who your friends are, what they say, because your friends are primed to think that you're a bigot if you do anything, anything at all other than just step in line. You will lose friends over it. You will have to think very carefully about what doctor you bring them to and what clinic you bring them to, because some clinics use this gender affirming protocol, which is that they don't question anything. They just say, oh, the child knows themselves best. And I've heard more times than I can count now about parents being told that they are bigots or children being told that their parents are bigots. Well, I've I've done some research too, and I guess there are cases in the US where parents who question the affirmation protocol and, you know, as, as you would know, the f- affirmation pathway is you start, you know, use so, a social transition, the he to her or they, then um, you move to a m- medical phase where they're put on blockers. So they arrest puberty. And that's when, you know, the damage, like long-term physiological damage can occur, or let's call it change. I I will not use the word damage. Let's call that change. And then the next stage is, you know, uh, cross-sex hormones and ultimately surgery. So it's a fairly well um, stepped out path, which I feel it would be quite intimidating for a parent to go against that. Yes, absolutely. And in some states in America now, you're risking having your child taken away from you if you go against it. Because if you stand against this, it counts as you being like the sort of person who would have given a, you know, a little gay boy electric shocks to try to turn him straight. They literally talk about anything except gender affirmation as conversion therapy which is in more and more states in America against the law, both for parents and for clinicians or therapists. So you are really in a... I mean, I cannot overemphasise. I do not have an easy answer for you. You are in a very difficult situation. But hang on a minute. Isn't this the opposite? Because what you said before is that many of these children, if left alone, uh, turn out to accept their physical sex. Yes, absolutely. And and often to be gay. So in fact, you're turning proto-gay kids into straight kids who appear to be of the opposite sex. So you're, you're, you're the one who's engaged in conversion therapy. You're turning little gay boys into women. You're turning little gay girls into men. 
I call it the postmodern conversion therapy, in fact. So the um, the expression that some parents may have heard, in particular those those parents who have given birth, formerly known as mothers, you may have heard the expression uh, cascade of intervention. The first time I heard it was when I was thinking about whether to have an epidural during childbirth, because an epidural starts a cascade of intervention. It makes it more likely that you need the next steps. I still had them, by the way. Wonderful. But uh, the um, affirmation pathway is a cascade of intervention. It's quite extraordinary. So, you know, a child comes in age four or five, says they're really a little girl. Um, you can dress them and call them she and give them a change of name and everyone will think this is a little girl. It'll look like a little girl because there aren't big differences pre-puberty. And you're reassured that this is reversible. And yes, technically it is reversible. It's just what's turning out is it mostly isn't. So that kid lives as a little girl. There's no reason for that child to become accustomed to the fact that they really are a boy. They don't even think about their sex anymore because you don't when you're little. And then puberty approaches and you've maybe been called a girl for the last several years. And the fact is your voice is going to break. You're going to get tall. Uh, your genitals are going to grow. You're going to get hair on your body. All of this seems disgusting to somebody who's been brought up as a little girl. So your parents didn't realise it. But when they agreed to that social transition when you, you were four, they've actually set you on a way to puberty blockers. So you start the puberty blockers. Now everybody else is going through puberty and you're not you're still a child, you're arrested in your development, you want to go along with all your other friends. So of course they start giving you cross-sex hormones. They used to wait till 16, now the pressure is to give it younger and younger and let you go through puberty at the same time as all your peers. So you said when you were four, you just wanted to wear a dress and now at 14, you're on estrogen. And now if you go through the whole way and you never go through your own body's puberty, you are sterile. There comes a point if you've never gone through your own puberty, it can't be picked up again. You can't at 25 or 30 decide that it was okay and you want to go back and go through your own puberty. You're sterile. We think you're probably quite sexually functionless as well, although nobody has done that research. You really have gone on a pathway that was set at a point at which people said to your parents, don't worry, reversible, little step, just time to think. My next question was going to be, Helen, and I'm I'm mindful we're, we're, we're reaching our, our time, but my, my next question was, what do you think is at stake when it comes to this issue? Because I know you're releasing a book next year. Um, I'm not sure if it has a title just yet. Um, it has a working title. I will share the working title with you. And you're the first person I've done that with. It's called Trans, How Gender Identity Conquered the World. Well, I, I know that many people listening in will want to go out and purchase it. But I guess before we wrap up, I want to invite you, I guess, to share what you feel is the most compelling take home from this entire situation for the community, for parents, and for, I guess, young people listening in? I suppose I'd say to people, don't be so sure that you must be the idiot here. So people are afraid, they don't want to be nasty, they don't want to be bigots, and that's great, I don't want anybody to be a bigot. But that fear is paralysing people and allowing what is you know, really transparently a total set of complete nonsense to circulate and become law, become what's taught in schools. We all know that. We know what a boy is. We know what a girl is. We know you can't change sex. You know those things. And if somebody else tells you that you're a bigot for thinking those things, you're not a bigot. You're just somebody who isn't willing to go along with the latest fashionable nonsense. That fashionable nonsense, I have no doubt, is going to burnout. I don't think that it's going to still be the fashion for teenage girls to call themselves NB, stands for non-binary, or, you know, trans mask or whatever the latest identity is. It's going to burn out. And you do not have to go along with it. And your family does not have to go along with it. And if your school is going along with it, challenge it. And don't let anyone tell you you're a bigot for doing so. You're just sensible. 
And I'm very sad for the people who will have been caught up in this psychic epidemic. You know, we have got a generation who have been taught a bunch of regressive nonsense about what boys and girls are. We're going to have a bunch of people who've had a bunch of surgeries and medicalization they didn't need to have, even if they're happy, even if they end up, you know, completely happy with what happened to them. You don't know what would have happened. And they're now sterile as well. But mo- I mean, really large numbers are not going to be happy. This has just been... We are in the middle of it. It's easy to see it afterwards. It's easy to look back at the multiple. Uh, sorry, it's easy to look back at the multiple personality syndrome uh, thing in the 1990s and say, "Gosh, that was dumb." Like, what were all those therapists on? But actually, millions of books were sold about it. Millions of Americans believed that they had multiple personalities, and it died out. And damaged people were left in the wake. So, my way of uh, phrasing to myself why I'm writing this book, like why I'm putting so much time in around a full-time job and neglecting my family, I have to say is because there is some number of teenage kids who are going to be sterilised and mutilated because of this. And I want that number to be as small as possible. Anything I can do to make it smaller is good. Helen, I can't thank you enough for lending your expertise and, I guess, providing us with such an insightful, well-researched and compelling account of what's going on. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Wrapping my interview with Helen, I found myself asking, how many well-meaning parents have ever thought of affirmation working like a gateway drug? What begins as liking pink or being drawn to anything that was pretty or had a skirt that could swirl might well be a threshold to a lifetime of hormonal therapy and irreversible surgery. If this is true, how can informed consent be established before a full experience of natal gender, or sexuality for that matter? Also, to what extent are we medicalising childhood imagination? And how can we answer any of this if asking tough questions or wanting a conversation puts one at risk of a hate crime? Before I dig any deeper, let's hear from our second guests, endocrinologist and trans health advocate Dr Ada Chung and non-binary transgender researcher Savs Wiki. Getting to know Ada and Sav in our preparation for this interview, it was a real privilege. Both personify care, resilience, and curiosity. Ada's defied some pretty tough beginnings and fought for her award-winning career every step of the way. Since 2017, she's focused her physician expertise on improving medical service for transgender Australians. She's conducted research that's now changing national medical policy. Sav has a master's degree in sexology and is currently completing a PhD focused on non-binary gender identities and experiences. They are part of the trans health research team at the University of Melbourne, where they're working on one of the largest longitudinal studies of transgender people in Australia. Sav is also involved in providing much-needed educational sessions to healthcare professionals to increase understanding of transgender people and their health needs. Sav is also involved in providing much-needed education to healthcare professionals to increase understanding of transgender people and their health needs. I wanted to start by inviting each of you um, I guess to tell me about your journey to date, be it professional or personal, in terms of what established you as subject subject matter experts. But Sav, could you could you lead us out? Sure. Uh, so my personal and my professional story are deeply entwined. Um, so as a child, I always felt very different. Uh, to other children and 
you know, this was back in the late 80s and early 90s and trans was not a word that, well, it was a word that barely existed at that point um, and it certainly wasn't a word that I'd heard of. So I really didn't have a way to make sense of what I was feeling about myself and, and going into through into puberty as well, I really struggled with the changes that were happening to, to me, but I still did not have a way of making sense of that uh, just because there wasn't much education um, and there certainly wasn't much media representation about trans people. And I didn't really learn about trans people until I was into my 20s. Um, and since then I've kind of been on a journey for the last decade or so to uh, kind of make make sense of myself and um, through this well, a part of this journey has has been kind of my academic professional journey as well. Uh, so I studied a master's degree in sexology, which um, helped me to understand a lot about myself in terms of my sexuality. Um, and then more recently, going down the path more of gender, I um, have started doing a PhD. So I'm about three years for a PhD um, looking at non-binary gender identities. And that too has um, sent me on quite a personal uh, journey. And about a year and a half ago, I found myself uh, doing some research with Ada's group. Uh, that's the Trans Health Research Group at Union of Melbourne. I'm so fascinated to know, and Ada, we will come to you for an intro, but I was I always love to know what people's PhD um, topic is. Yeah, so non-binary genders. That's a pretty new topic for a lot of people or a lot of people haven't even heard of it at all. So non-binary means that you do not identify with the gender or the sex that you were assigned at birth, yet you don't identify with what we know as the binary opposite. So in my case, I do not identify as a woman, uh, even though I was assigned female at birth. However, I don't identify as a man either. I kind of see myself sitting somewhere in between um, the male-female binary. Um, and that, that's a similar experience for a lot of other non-binary people as well. Um, they see themselves somewhere in the middle or they see their gender is quite fluid, so one day they'll feel a lot more masculine, other days they'll feel more feminine, or they not, might not have a real sense of gender at all. Um, and not surprisingly, there's, it's, um, there's not a lot of research um, and therefore I kind of stumbled upon the topic and, um, yeah, jumped right into a four-year PhD. So I am essentially looking at how people, the journey people go on to make sense of themselves as non-binary because, of course, there's so little information out there, there's next to no media representation, uh, how it is that we kind of come to make sense of ourselves in that way and call ourselves non-binary and just our day-to-day -day, uh, experience living in a very binary gendered society because a lot of people don't realise how gendered so much of what we do every day is. So, uh, you know, for example, what public bathroom do you use when you need to go to the bathroom? Um, if you want to play sport, what sports team do you pick, the male or the female, um, all those kinds of things. So there's not a lot of research and I'm hoping to, you know, really capture a lot of people's stories and, and put them out there and hopefully develop a greater, wider understanding of, of our experiences. Ada, we're finally getting to hear about your story. Um, now, I know you did medicine at Melbourne University and 
I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about your professional journey and how you came to settle on, I guess, endocrinology and, you know, really being a, a, um, a leading light in the area of trans health. So, yep, I studied medicine and then I, um, I went on to do a PhD after training in specialty uh, endocrinology as a specialist. Um, and my PhD was in hormones, so um, testosterone and estrogen, so the typical male and female hormones. And then everything changed about five years ago when I had lunch with a colleague of mine, Professor Jeffrey Zajac. And um, he was, we were having lunch in the tea room and he was saying to me, you know what, Ada, I'm seeing more and more trans people and the hospital won't let me bring them into our clinics. And I said to him, what do you mean the hospital won't let you bring people into our clinics? And he said, well, our colleagues are refusing to see trans people and our CEO um, is not so keen on having trans people attend our, our clinics for hormonal treatment. Um, and so I didn't know anything about trans health at the time. So I said, well, this just sounds absurd. Um, I'm not doing anything. I was in the middle of a PhD. So doing mainly um, research, I said, I'll see them. And so I did, um, not really knowing what I was getting, um, not really knowing anything about the area I was getting into. So Jeff Sajak and I, we saw everybody across the road from the Austin because Austin didn't allow us to have a clinic. And we saw everyone across the road, bolt build everybody, and we saw over a number of years about a five-fold increase in trans people coming for care. Um, the numbers were just exponentially rising. Um, and I just heard story after story of exactly what Jeff was telling me, that people were being refused care by doctors. Um, and to me that just struck a chord because... Um, how can a doctor refuse to see a patient? Um, I'd ex I've experienced various forms of discrimination in my life and over the years, and so um, I just uh, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And it wasn't just discrimination; it was just alarming um, health uh, disparity. So people were socioeconomically disadvantaged. They had, um, you know, health needs that just weren't being met. And so by the time Jeff and I, you know, had about 500 patients, we thought, well, this is really silly. We're going to try and get a better service. So we knew that we needed something multidisciplinary. And because I was doing all this research and like, we also knew that there was very little research in the field. So I, I, I had the research skills. So I thought, well, I'm going to try and answer some of these unanswered health questions. You know, what is it about mental health that's um, uh, affecting uh, the trans community? What is it about, you know, how can we best give hormone therapy? There was just no research in the field. So I started a research group, which has just steadily grown over the last three or four years. And we have a range, we've done a range of research, including one that demonstrated um, not only that fivefold increase, but alarming rates of depression affecting about 85% um, anxiety, also alarming rates of self-harm and um, suicide attempts affecting 43% of the Australian trans community and that the community themselves saw that their biggest health issue was inability to find doctors to provide care. And so we took this data to government um, and um, really 
lobbying for better funding for trans health and and the Victorian government really responded to that and you know over a number of years we've sort of developed this, not only a research group a clinical service but this last um, 12 months a new statewide training program in trans health for um, Victorian health professionals particularly GPs um, in response to what the community were telling us and also two new multidisciplinary gender clinics um, that have just launched in Ballarat and also in Preston in Melbourne. In some ways I am making the and probably no one listening can see me making the face but I'm making the um, I'm quite taken aback by your professional account and that doctors won't or didn't see or wouldn't see trans people because, I mean, I was trained in the public system obviously and to me that is a horrifying reality if if that's true and I, I know it is true. Um, I want to come back to this idea of the biological base of gender because I think that could be a good segue towards childhood. I actually want, Sav, first, I guess, to speak to the idea of being trans and well-being and what that means. Do you feel comfortable sort of to speak on behalf of um, the trans community and, you know, what what would that actually mean to have well-being, to have full, thriving health? It means It means people believing us when we say we are who we are. It means people respecting our names and our pronouns. It means being able to access the healthcare that we need or we desire. Uh, it means not being rejected by our family and friends because of who we are. Um, and it means people who are closest to us actually taking a moment and realising that when we do come out and we tell them that we're trans, we just want to live our true best lives. And the people that stick around will see that that trans people thrive when they're given the opportunity to. It all sounds completely fair and reasonable and in some ways quite a low bar um, for a human <laughs> to ask in 2020. Yeah, yeah, you know, like just basic human respect, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, like we are just, we are normal people. We want to live normal lives and, you know, for some of us that, in order to achieve that, it might be that we do need hormones or we do need surgery. Um, but, you know, we're not, uh, yeah, I, I really, I, I struggle personally to, to understand the issue that a lot of people have with trans people because at the end of the day, you know, like anyone else, we, we are just trying to live our best lives. And for some of us, there's just such a block and a barrier to doing that that um, until, you know, we can be seen for who we are. I just want to say that um, trans people come from all walks of life. Like, you know, we've, um, you know, I've heard so many stories, hundreds and hundreds of stories. We have trans people are our colleagues, our fellow scientists. Trans people are doctors, are lawyers, government workers, celebrities, plumbers, electricians, tradies, radio presenters. And um, trans people are actually just, there's diverse, there's diversity within being trans and trans is just one aspect of that individual person. Um, and I think just seeing 
people is people. And, but what I hear day in, day out is barriers, barriers. And, and it's all barriers like inability to see a doctor and access healthcare, inability to rent a house. I had a patient go into a rental, uh, a real estate agency um, who was um, assigned male at birth but identified as female. So they identified as a transgender woman. They went in and asked for the rental list and they were told that there was nothing available. They went back the same day dressed as a male and they got a house to rent. Like there are just simple... Uh, barriers to living a life that just an ordinary life, getting a house to rent, getting a job, employment discrimination um, because someone's trans or even discrimination in, you know, going to the shops, catching a tram without being abused. Um, Just simple, simple things that I think we take for granted. Um, Discrimination is the biggest, biggest barrier, discrimination and abuse. What do you think that's about? People are scared of what's different. Uh, They're scared of what they don't know. And we see that with ethnic minorities. We see that with people with disabilities. Uh, People tend to lash out at things they don't understand, unfortunately. Um, And that's where I think opportunities like this, you know, Ada and myself jump at them because when you hear the stories, you begin to understand and, you know, that, that, that helps to start dismantling some of the, the barriers. And I think I've had a lot of colleagues who, when I first started working in this space, um, would ask me, why are you working with trans people? Um, but all they needed to do was actually meet trans people and realise that trans people are just people and are just ordinary people from all aspects of life and I think once you meet a trans person I think people realize there's nothing to fear um they're not yeah and often there's a lot of um a lot of people who say negative things about trans people don't know any trans people don't treat trans people as health professionals and um haven't taken the time to speak to a trans person. Can we loop towards treatment? Because I think that's a really important part to kind of threading this conversation about, I guess, when someone identify or when they can with confidence identify as being trans and with confidence a clinician can meet those needs. One of the controversies that is alive and very, I guess, hot potato would be a fair way to describe it, is the treatment of trans children um, or children I d- that are non-conforming. In that situation, it's it's very clear that the, the situation as it stands is being presented as a medical one and then, you know, young people are shipped off to, say, a gender clinic. Do you feel that that is, you know, that represents progress? It, it It's... Um... It depends. So there are some, now just put it out there, I don't treat children but I have colleagues who treat children and um, I collaborate with um, adolescent trans health researchers. Um, I think it depends on the individual. I think 
gender is often discovering an individual's gender, I hear a lot of the time can be, sometimes it's very obvious from a very early age, from the earliest memory people can remember, they know their gender. And sometimes it's very discordant with what their um, the social environment that they're living in, but other times it's not. And sometimes it can take some time to discover what their gender is. Um, so it really depends on the individual and whether they are experiencing distress um, about their gender. And if they are experiencing distress about their gender, whether the environment that they're in is able to support that distress and support that individual. And I guess if the environment that they're in, whether that be the family, the school, the health environment they're in, if they are not able to appropriately support the individual, then it might be appropriate to refer them to a specialised gender clinic who may be able to provide assessment and support. From the research I've done, in countries like the US and um, I guess the UK, in in children as young as 10, getting access to sort of puberty blockers and things like that. I mean, does that present a bit of a danger if a child, you know, as you said, I guess before we started recording, gender is in, in many instances fluid. We, we can all take a long time to kind of settle on a, a spot. You know, the purpose of um, puberty blockers, we only... Um, initiate puberty blockers if an individual has persistent gender dysphoria and has been through an extensive assessment by a multidisciplinary team which would involve paediatricians, adolescent physicians, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists and it's not taken lightly and it depends on how much distress that child has about their impending puberty. There is sometimes the dysphoria or the distress about getting a lowered voice if they identify as female is so intense that it can really severely affect the development and the mental health of that child. And it's only in those sort of circumstances that we would consider puberty blockers. And puberty blockers, the reason that it's initiated is to give time and because it is reversible. It halts puberty and if it is at the age of 10, it's only because that child is going into puberty at that point. Um, And it gives time for the child to mature and to explore their gender further before embarking on more definitive gender affirmation interventions. I'm trying to work out what the what the global freakout is about because there is a a, um, a definite, I guess, controversy around, I guess, the treatment of children. I mean, I, I actually tried to reach out to the Children's Hospital who I think because of articles that appeared in Australian weren't able to participate. Yeah. What is what what is the seat of that controversy from your observation, Ada? I think that unfortunately trans children are politicized unnecessarily and inappropriately. I think each child should be evaluated individually by their parents and their treating clinicians and it shouldn't be a 
they shouldn't be grouped and put into the media. So, for example, I've seen headlines in The Australian that, you know, children are being castrated, um, but that's just not the case. We don't castrate children. Castration has an implication that something is permanent. But, you know, children, and children do not have surgery. That's the other thing. What is the youngest age you can get surgery, like get a mastectomy in Australia? Um it would be at least an age where the individual is able to provide informed consent. And generally, medical age of consent, um, provided that the child is gillic competent, which is assessed by their treating clinicians, would be a minimum of 16 in general. Sev, I'm going to ask you kind of a hypothetical in that Support can come in many forms and understanding that, you know, some, um, in some instances there is a, a direct distress arising from physical changes. Do you feel there is, like, do you feel that if we as a society became broadly more accepting of diversity, more accepting just of gender expression in all its colour and form, that the, that the, um, the need to say, physically conform, might be reduced? That's a really tough question. It's a question I've been asked before. Um, And it's a question that tends to be directed towards people who are assigned female at birth because, you know, most of us will recognise that females are disadvantaged in one way or another. Um, However, I feel like there is... And I think most trans people would say this, aside from social things, there is something inside you that says your body is not the way it should be. And that drives the need to to change your body. Um, So, you know, for people who have breasts, a complete disgust in their breasts, they can't look in a mirror. Um, showering is traumatic. Like that's the level that it can be at. Um, And so they see no other way to move forward and to be, to live their full potential and be productive members of society without that surgery. So I guess what I'm hearing is it's crippling. It's a crippling um, sense of discord. Yes. With your physical situation. Yes. And yeah, so there, there, there's that aspect of it, but there is, there is a social aspect because we get treated so differently in society based on whether people perceive us as men or women. We really do. Like this, there's, I don't think a lot of cisgender people, so people who aren't transgender realize like how much gendering goes on. So for example, as a non-binary person, I use they, them pronouns rather than she, her or he, him pronouns. But the average person has never heard those pronouns before. So I most often get read as a female and I will go get a coffee and it's, hi, hi ma'am, can I help you with anything? And then, you know, so I'm somewhere else later in the day and it's, oh, can you help this lady with whatever? All that kind of gendering is, it happens so many times throughout our lives. And, you know, yeah, just 
it's yeah, it's hard to explain, but the, the way that men and women are treated is quite different. And if you speak to trans people who are, who have spent most of their life living in one gender and then start to be read and treated as another gender, they can really tell you very uh, distinct differences in how um, men and women are treated. I think in terms of looking towards the future, I want to point you both towards, I guess, what you imagine progress to be. We're at a time where I think everyone observes this explosion in people presenting, but there's hard pushback and then there's controversy, there's nasty discussion, there's fierce debate. What is the future you imagine? If you could, and I invite you both to kind of take your time and answer fully, um, what is the future you imagine for the trans and non-binary community? What's the dream? My, my, you know, my dream is for everybody to be able to live their full life, a life without any barriers, without discrimination, and be who they are regardless of their gender, their race, their sexual identity, their heritage, the way they look. Um, and I challenge those people who take offence at transgender people, like how does it actually hurt you? Like does it matter how someone dresses or whether they want you to call them this particular name? You know, it, it actually doesn't hurt you. Um, and in fact, accepting someone causes less distress for someone harbouring hate um, and dislike. Um, and, and I challenge people just to have conversations with trans people because once you have a conversation with a trans person, you just realise it's just like your brother or your sister. Um, and these notions of how we should be, like who dictates who we should be? I know that a lot of people have strict religious beliefs, but, um, you know, just I think have an open mind. So, Sav, over to you. I guess bearing in mind that there's probably a parent or two listening in, um, maybe even a young person, maybe they haven't quite decided their direction. What would you point them to? What what would you imagine for them and for their future? You know, as someone who spent many, many years struggling with my gender and not having anyone to turn to and feeling like I was completely alone in the world, I am struggling mate with depression, suicidal thoughts. Um, and, you know, now I know I'm certainly not alone in that kind of experience. Many trans people go through a similar thing. I, my hope for a future is one in which people who are different in terms of gender, they who are non-conforming in terms of gender, are... Uh, respected, are allowed to flourish. I hope for a world in which there is education in schools around gender diversity and sexuality. Uh, I wish for a world in which teachers and parents 
would allow their child to flourish and support them in ever which way that is. And sometimes it might just be a phase and sometimes it might be for real and they are trans and they're going to live their life as a trans person. Um, and I hope for a world where one day we are not seen as freaks, um, that we are not scared of discrimination constantly. Um, yeah, a world in which we, we, we can be who we want to be because we are not hurting anyone in doing so. Um, it just allows us to, to flourish and to be amazing people who contribute amazing things to society. Sav, Ada, I want to thank you both for showing up, being real um, and having the courage and um, openness to actually speak about your personal experiences. I hope this isn't our last interview. So thank you so much for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Speaking to Ada and Sav, it's very clear that across the board, there's a real need to continue to build conversation and awareness around what it means to live as a trans person. We also need to acknowledge disparities in health, social and economic outcomes as unacceptable. They represent the work we all need to do as a community. That said, when it comes to understanding what is innate about gender dysphoria in children that demands medical intervention, it feels like there's a lot of unanswered territory. Given the diversity of the trans experience, I'm left asking, how can we balance having clear minimum health standards while truly individualising care? For trans people, parents and treating clinicians, how can the price of present-day distress be weighed against the opportunity cost or long-term impact of doing something, especially when we fall short of consensus on what to do? How do we balance the need to name, categorise and treat with the need to accept and foster belonging? And where parents and young people are accessing information globally, how can we explain and or contend with clearly very different approaches and standards of care? This is a conversation to be continued. In our next episode, we'll be joined by Walt Heyer, former male-to-female transgender and also Associate Professor Ramin Cheyenne, plastic and reconstructive surgeon and director of the O'Brien Institute. Thanks for joining me on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. 